as well. As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we pray that you would cause your word to work in us in such a way that it would, by your spirit, overcome uh, any doubts that we might have about our Lord Jesus, uh, his life, his death, his resurrection, what he accomplished, so that we may believe. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, uh, to John and chapter 20. I want to read beginning with verse 19 and through the chapter. John chapter 20, please. It's good to follow along if you can. If you don't have anything to follow along with, then listen. It's always good to learn to listen. Um, It's an important skill in every area of life. Uh, Every mom would say, if there are kids would only listen, right? So we need to learn to listen. We need to listen in various contexts, but we most especially need to learn to listen to the voice of God. And you say, how is it that God speaks to us? He speaks to us by his word. And so as we read, as we listen attentively to the word of God, we're hearing not my voice, not your voice, but the very voice of God. And so I know for some who come to our church for a while, they say, boy, you read a lot of Bible every Sunday. <laughs> and they say, what did you expect? But, but, but um, it's a church. But, um, but yeah, we do. Uh, but, we, but give it, if, if you're unable, sometimes you say, it's hard for me to listen through the whole long passage that you may read because some weeks we may read two or three passages during the course of our, of our worshiping together. But it's good to listen. And, and I tell people, and I believe this is true, that if, if you begin paying attention and listening, that within six months you'll be listening. And if you go to a church that doesn't read a lot of Bible, you'll leave going, hmm, something was missing today. And what was missing was that voice of God. So, so really learn to listen. I say that to you, I say that to me. So listen, this is the word of God. On the evening of that day, that day was what we would call Easter Sunday, the day of the resurrection of Jesus. On, that, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. 
although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now I want, God will help me this morning, to draw our attention really to this incident uh, surrounding Thomas and, and Jesus. Um, it's related to what had happened the previous Sunday evening, that Sunday evening when Jesus came to what would be 10 disciples. Judas obviously not there. Thomas was not there. And Jesus came and he showed these 10 disciples his, his wounds. And, and he came to them really and said, peace to you. Uh, that would not have been a surprise. It was a greeting, but it was more than just a greeting because he had told them uh, previously on that week, he had told them that he would give to them his peace. And he said, you can be at peace. You don't need to be anxious. You don't need to be troubled. In the world, you'll have tribulation, but, 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 but don't worry. I've overcome. I've overcome the world. And so they could have peace because, you see, Jesus came to deal with the root problem, really, that existed in the world, which was sin, sin in people, sin in us that permeated throughout everyone and the world. So he came to deal with that root problem. He dealt with it by way of his death. Primarily, he he died so that the penalty, the guilt of that sin would be taken for those who would believe in him so that those who believed in him would not be under the curse, would, would not be under the wrath of God, uh, would not be condemned, but would have eternal life that would be received, accepted by God, reconciled to him. And as proof of that, that he had died, he showed them his wounds, and proof that he had risen, well, he was there. And so they could believe. And he said to them, peace to you. And then in a very real sense, he gives them what we find in, in Matthew's gospel that we call the Great Commission. He gives them a sense of that. He sends them out with the gospel, that is, with his gospel that brings forgiveness of sins. That would come through initially these apostles that uh, he would send, that he would send out. They were there, closed doors, um, afraid but then he comes in the midst of them and he reveals himself to him that he's really alive now thomas wasn't wasn't there and so during the week these who had seen jesus said to thomas we've seen the lord right and then they they walked no doubt Thomas through that experience and walked Thomas through all that Jesus would have talked to them on that night. But Thomas, as we see here, said, sorry, boys, I don't believe that. I won't believe, at least until I see it for myself. And then he said, I'm going to have to touch him as well to know that this is, this is really, really true. Now, we, we know that this 
incident has created an idiom, a figure of speech in, in our own language we call Doubting Thomas. There are many perhaps who use that phrase even today that have no idea that it's in the Bible, that that's the origins of it because we live in such a culture that people have no clue really about the Bible. As sociologists tell us, no Christian memory that is no attachment to anything Christian. And so this expression, Doubting Thomas, if you look it up in the dictionary, it will say one who doubts. Uh, people use it, but they may not even know where it or where it originates, but, but it's here in the, this passage, obviously, this Thomas who doubts at this point. We don't know very much about Thomas, really. In fact, John, this gospel, is the only one who says anything about him other than listing him with the other apostles. Uh, John gives us a couple snippets, though, into Thomas' life. Uh, you might remember that right before Jesus went to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, Thomas has an expression, has a line. Uh, Because the context is this. Jesus had just had had an encounter with the religious leaders, and they wanted to first stone him, and then they wanted to arrest him. And the reason they wanted to do that was because Jesus had just made the claim that he, Jesus, and the Father were one. And they recognized that as blasphemy worthy of death. Because he, as they said, being a man, is making himself out to be God. When Jesus slipped through all of that and then gathers again with his disciples, they get word that Lazarus first is sick and then later that Lazarus has died. And when they get word that Lazarus is sick, Jesus delays going until after, really, Lazarus dies. And Jesus says, I've delayed and I'm going to go up now. So that you may believe, that is, he's going to use this, Jesus is, to, 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 to help them believe that he really is the Christ, that he really is from God. Upon hearing that, that Jesus is going to go back into the throes of it, back into the attention of the religious leaders, Thomas says, all right, let's go with him so we can die with him. So we see that he had a real commitment to Jesus. He didn't quite get it, obviously. But, but, but he was willing to go and die for Jesus. Then, just on the eve of the crucifixion, which would just been a few days before, a uh, week and a few days before this encounter with Thomas, uh, Thomas had been there with Jesus, and Jesus had said that he was going to the Father and to prepare a place for them, and that they would know the way. And Thomas was the one who asked the reasonable question. We don't know the way. I mean, what really is the way? And then that gave Jesus opportunity to say, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. There's no way to the Father except by me. So, so that's all we know of Thomas. And we have to be careful not to do too much of a psychological mock-up on him, a psychological prog- uh, profile on him, because we really don't know that much about him, really. Some sense of commitment, some sense of curiosity that seemed to be somewhat well-placed in the midst of, the, of that discussion. Uh, you would expect somebody like Peter to ask that question, but Thomas to ask this. You get a, a sort of a sense of him, but he wasn't in that upper room on that particular evening. And so the question that, that we ask is, how are we really to, uh, to understand this? What are, we to, what are we to make of this situation between Jesus and Thomas? How are we really to understand it? I must confess, when I was a kid, the primary application of this passage was, don't miss Sunday night church. 
because Thomas did and see what he missed. <laughs> and uh, that didn't even ring true for me then. Uh, that there better be other reasons to come to Sunday night church uh, than, uh, than that one. It just didn't seem to fit that that would be the intention of God uh, for that. Because you see, we don't know why Thomas wasn't there. We have no idea. It doesn't tell us. But if Jesus really is Jesus, if he's really the son of God, if he really was the risen Christ, then you can bet that he knew that Thomas wasn't going to be there. I don't think it was a surprise to him. I don't think he walked in and said, where's Thomas? Why isn't he here? You see, this is the risen Christ. He knew who was going to be there. So as always, we get the sense that Jesus is orchestrating something. Just like, remember last Sunday when we talked through these companions on the road to Emmaus, it says that they were unable to recognize him. We go, we don't know exactly what was the immediate reason that they couldn't recognize him, but you get the sense that Jesus knew they didn't recognize him and he was using that and that was part of this whole situation so that he could really reveal himself at just the right time that would be most revelatory, most revealing, most helpful, most faith drawing for them and so 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 you get the same sense really thomas is near why not we don't know but he isn't jesus would know so what's really going on here so then on the next sunday evening thomas was there now it would have been a bit unnerving i suspect for jesus to quote thomas to thomas Jesus wasn't there when, I mean, physically, at least visually, when visibly, when, when Thomas said, I won't believe unless I can see him and touch him. But Jesus said, here I am, see me and touch me. That would have been a bit, I suspect, unnerving there. And you do get a sense during the course of this week-long time that there was doubt in Thomas's mind about whether this Jesus really had risen, whether this Jesus was really who he had thought he was during that whole period of time when he was with Jesus. He had seen him die. And, and we resonate some with that. We, we understand doubting, even in the midst of belief. Psalmist knew of it. The psalm I read to you this morning, Psalm 42, was a psalmist who knew the truth. He says, as a deer pants for water, so my soul thirsts for thee, O God. And so you get this sense, and you get this sense, though, that there were such enemies that had come around him that he was wondering, and he even asked the question, God, why have you forgotten me? Where are you really? And he speaks to his own soul, of course, and he says, soul, why are you so downcast? Because he really was downcast, this, this sense of, of wondering, where is God? The sense of doubting, do I really belong to him? Is he really there? Does he really love me? Am I really part of this whole covenant thing? He speaks to his soul and he says, hope in God. Hope in God. We know this doubting even in the life of John the Baptist. Remember when John the Baptist was in prison, he sent his disciples to the disciples of Jesus and he said to his disciples, ask Jesus, are you really the Christ? And we want to say, come on, John. I mean, when you were in your mother's womb, and Mary, who was carrying Jesus at the time, walked in the room. 
you leapt for joy. You knew him then. You you knew him on the day he approached you. And you declared him to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And you're the one who baptized him. And and when you did, you were there when the dove came and and the the, the voice came and said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. John, why now? What's going on? And you get the sense, he's, I'm in prison. I didn't expect this when the Messiah came. So I just need a little bit of, little assurance here that he really is, really is the Christ. You remember, there was a man who had a son who'd been demonized and was being demonized. And this demon was, was, was causing all sorts of havoc in this boy's life. And so Jesus comes on the scene. The man sees Jesus and he asks him to deal with his son's situation, to heal him, to deliver him. And, and Jesus said, all things are possible to those who believe. And at that point, the man no doubt looking at Jesus and all that he knew of Jesus going through his head and everything else going on at the moment, he said, I believe. But then he said, but help my unbelief. If there's unbelief in me, I I get it. I I believe, but wow, this is going to be remarkable. So help me. And that we understand that even in the course of our lives. Difficulties come, we wonder. Troubles hit, we wonder. Some of us are made up in just a particular way that we're always wondering. And it's difficult for us. If we could plagiarize a 1990s bumper sticker we would write doubt happens right it just does in the course of our lives and then as i read this i wonder too can we make these kinds of demands on jesus i mean i have to be honest when i read this passage and every time i read it and i read thomas saying i'm not going to believe until i see these wounds and i I put my fingers in them and i actually touch them it kind of takes my breath away and i want to say thomas you really want to say you want to go there i mean don't you remember this is jesus i mean remember his authority remember his power remember his all of that about him his claims and what you believed about him remember that he's the one who can calm the storm with his word he's the one who can walk on water he's the one who can raise the dead are you sure that you want to stand bold-faced before him and say, I'm not going to believe until I actually see it. Do you really? Because Thomas, you have a lot to go on already. I mean, you have all that experience with Jesus and seeing all of those miracles, hearing that teaching, being with him for those years. You have the word of your friends who all say that he saw him. You you still have the empty tomb and all of that. Thomas, isn't there really enough for you for you to go on, but I, I wonder, can we, is this telling us, this passage, is it telling us that, that we can make these kinds of demands? We can say, Jesus, you know, we may not want to say, Jesus, I won't believe in you unless you show up and I actually see you the way Thomas did, but, but maybe we could say, Jesus, I'll believe in you, you know, if, if I win the lottery, you know? Or Jesus, I believe in you if you heal my grandfather. Or Jesus, I'll believe in you if my life looks like this. Or, Jesus, uh, if you're a graduate student, I'll believe in you if I, you know, pass my comps. Uh, Jesus, I'll believe in you if, if, if you if you find me a wife before I graduate. And it's April, and I'm a senior. I'm not that good looking. You know, uh, and, you know, it would lay out these, and, and if that happens, then, then I'll really, then, then can we make those kinds uh, of demands on Jesus? Is that what it's about 
Is this addressing our doubts? Is this giving us the freedom, the license to make demands upon Jesus like this? I don't think so. Here's why. Number one, this request of Thomas was actually kind of reasonable. Because you see, this was in the day that Jesus was making appearances. You see, this was a very unique time in history, in redemptive history. I mean, let's face it, this time isn't going to be repeated. This is the time between the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. I mean, right then. So this is a a huge transition time for the whole world, right? Everything has been pointing to this event, the coming of this Jesus, these disciples following him around, this crucifixion and all that that brought with it, this resurrection. And then Jesus would ascend and leave them. And so this wasn't that unreasonable uh, a request, really, because Jesus had shown himself to these others. Why not me, Thomas would say? I'm an apostle as well. So, so it isn't that unreasonable, really, for him to request to see what they saw so that he too could believe. Because you see, really, they were only a week ahead of him. It's not like they would have necessarily believed without seeing Jesus. They did see him. It wasn't that when the women came back and said the tomb is empty, the angel said he's risen, that they all jumped up and said, oh, yeah, we believe that. Remember these people on the road to Emmaus? They had heard all of that. They had heard all of that about Jesus. But but it wasn't enough even for them to believe. This was so different what anyone could ever imagine, someone rising from the dead. See, there was a whole group of religious leaders in Israel who didn't believe in any kind of a resurrection. They were called the Sadducees, right? Others believed in a resurrection, but not until the end of time. No one really had a category in their brain for this. And, and so for Thomas to say, I won't believe until I see it too, wasn't all that unreasonable. Now, for you and me to say that would be unreasonable. And it would be unreasonable because Jesus has, in fact, ascended. He's he's in glory. He's not making appearances (laughs) these these days. In fact, even Jesus himself said to, to Thomas, he said, have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed, because you see, that would, be, that would be the norm. In fact, the Apostle Peter, when he writes to a group of believers, he writes as one who had seen, but he writes to the church made up of those who hadn't seen. And he says this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in this last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Peter sets all of this up. He says, I know you've been going through difficulties, but the difficulties are testing your faith and proving it genuine, really, strengthening it and all of that, purifying it. And then verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, you see. It was reasonable for him, but not reasonable really for us now that he's ascended. That isn't the expectation uh, that we will see Jesus to believe. The only ones really, the only one after this that we know of who saw Jesus to believe was Paul, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, had a vision of Jesus. And um, it enabled him, caused him to believe. And this was the unique thing for Thomas as well. Because the apostles of Jesus were to be the eyewitnesses of the resurrection so that they could testify to the resurrection to everyone else, both in their life and by way of the writings that would come from them and those who knew them, so that we would know this truth by their eyewitness testimony. You see, we can come to know things either by seeing it for ourselves or by hearing about it from people we trust. And we've come to faith, everyone since the ascension, we've come to faith by way of the testimony of these who saw it. And there's a sense in which Thomas needed to see Jesus risen so that he as they would be an eyewitness so that he as they would be one of these apostles that he had been chosen to be you see and that in fact he was you know the one unique characteristic of all the apostles you might remember was that they had seen been a witness to the resurrection of jesus you remember in acts chapter one when they were choosing a replacement for judas the key factor for the replacement of Judas, is that this one had to have been a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. They were eyewitnesses. They had <clears throat> seen it. And so Thomas, yes, he was, he was doubting. He was in this in-between time, in this transition time. He was coming, if you will, to believe, to see it. He was a believer, yes. Jesus had said on the night that he washed the defeat of the disciples that they were all clean except for Judas. When Jesus makes his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he says, they have come to believe that you have sent me. Thomas was in that. But now in the midst of this, he has to see it as an apostle, to be an eyewitness. And so all of this is orchestrated in that sense and for us as well. Because you see, the thing that we're to get from this, I think, the thing that we're to emulate from this is not Thomas's doubting, but Thomas's profession of faith. When he saw Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God. 
See, that's why this is here. Notice verse 30. Uh, John writes this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's saying, here's why I've written what I've written. Here's what I've included, what I've included. And John is, like the other gospel writers, very selective in what he writes. In verse 25 of chapter 21, John ends his gospel with this expression. He says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. He's saying, listen, I've just chosen a little bit. In fact, what I call Bible accountants, people that count things in the Bible, uh, make lists of things, say that John touches on only 21 or 22 days in the life of Jesus. That's how selective he is. In fact, if you think about it, chapter 13 begins with the Thursday evening before Jesus' Friday crucifixion. Chapters 13 through 19 cover less than a 24-hour period of time. So seven chapters out of the first 19 deal with less than 24-hour period. Then, chapters 20 and 21 deal with a few appearances of Jesus over a 40-day period of time. So he's very selective. Now, is it historical? Yes, we believe it's true historically. But we believe that he's pulling from this history to make a point. And the point that he's making is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that there's, there's life by believing in his name. So this expression of Thomas is the climax, really, of John's gospel. How does he begin? He begins the gospel by telling us that this one who has come is God in the flesh. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Chapter 14 of chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This very one is God. Through the course of everything he lays out, his point is to to show that that is really true. That's really true of this Jesus of Nazareth. That he's God in the flesh. And so he takes us through various signs, various miracles. Jesus turns water into wine. He heals a, 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 a Roman official's son. He heals him. He takes a man who had been sick for 38 years, and he heals him, you see. He feeds thousands of people with just a little bit of food. He walks on water, right? Does all of that. He takes a man who was born blind, and he gives him new eyes. Takes this friend, Lazarus, who's been dead for days, and he raises him from the dead. Why those signs? To show that this one who has come is really Lord and Christ. From the lips of Jesus, we hear that he is the bread of life, right? That he is uh, the good shepherd. That he is the door. 
that he is the way and the truth and the life, that he is the resurrection and the life, you see, that he is the true vine, all of those, so that we would believe. And then he brings us to Thomas. And he says, here is one who couldn't believe until he actually saw it. And parenthetically, I think John is saying, you'll never see it until you meet him in glory or he returns. So Thomas saw it for you. It was reasonable that he would see it. That was the time that Jesus was showing himself to his apostles so they would be eyewitnesses. And so it's reasonable, you see, that he would see it and not you. But the, the, the apostles got the great royal treatment, if you will. They got to see everything. Every, every, they, they, they got the empirical evidence. They got the biblical evidence. They got the physical evidence. They got all of it in, in that period of time. Jesus walked them through the scriptures. He said, here I am. They saw what had happened and all of that. Why? So they could tell us. And, and so people say, well, can we, like Thomas did, say, Jesus, show yourself to me? And the answer to that is, yes, we understand, show yourself. Reveal yourself, yes. That's a great prayer to pray. But he's given us the way by which he reveals himself. He's gives, given us these eyewitnesses through whom he reveals himself. And these are the ones to whom, you see, to whom we go. These are the eyewitnesses. John writes very explicitly, in his first epistle, he, he, lays it, he lays it out. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you that you too may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Say, we've seen it. We really have. And we don't have any reason to lie, really. Why would we lie about this? Don't you know who we are? We were the reluctant ones. We were the ones who had traveled with him all these years. We were the ones that had heard him teach. We were the ones who had seen everything that he had done. And we were the ones who didn't believe that he was risen from the dead because we had no category in our brain for anything like that. But you see, that's the deal. And because he's risen and we've seen it, we're telling you, and, and, and we died for this. This changed everything in our lives because we saw it. Trust us. Come to us. We'll tell you what we've seen, what we've heard. This is the way through which he will reveal. Remember last week, uh, Jesus on the road to Emmaus, where these people took them through the Old Testament. And now we're hearing, and also then this New Testament. This is the means by which, through his Spirit, You'll see him. So he says, yes, pick up this book and say, Jesus, show yourself to me. And Jesus, by your spirit, convince me. And read. 
Think upon him. Listen to others speak of him. Know him and believe these eyewitnesses. These eyewitness accounts. That's the means by which, you see, he comes. Thomas is here. So that we can hear this reluctant one say, he's the Lord. He's God. And not only that, he's my Lord. See, that word Lord is is the very word used of God in the Old Testament thousands of times. That word Lord is the one, is the word that Jesus used of his father when he said he's Lord of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's the Lord. And it's the word that Jesus used of himself when he said, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the rest that comes from God. I'm the Lord. I'm God. And it's personal. I'm yours. Believe me. Trust me. Follow me. You see, when he says he's the Lord, Jesus is saying, as his father had said on Mount Sinai, he's putting it like this, have no other saviors before me. Don't trust any other savior. No one, nothing else can save you. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your works. Don't commend yourself to God by who you are and what you've done. Don't don't trust your health. You'll die. Don't, 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 Don't trust your wealth. It will fail you. Don't trust the honor that you receive from other people because their word really doesn't mean anything. Don't have any other saviors but Jesus. He's the Lord. He's Trust him. That's what John is telling us through this incident with Thomas. Oh yeah, we do doubt, but he's not saying it's okay to doubt. He's saying trust as Thomas did. Believe, you see. Believe and that there is then real life. It is important. That Jesus was able to show the disciples his wounds. It's a beautiful picture in the revelation that John receives of Jesus. Revelation in chapter 5. And while we know it's difficult to understand everything, the images take a while to see and unpack and all that at times. But one of the first things that Jesus, that John saw was Jesus, one of the first images, Revelation in chapter 5, verse 6. And he says, even in glory, this is the picture, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. You know who that is, obviously, it's Jesus. We don't know exactly what he was seeing. We don't exactly, but he was trying to communicate something to us in this great, beautiful image of a lamb. We know the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We know that lambs were the very sacrifice of God to be slain for the sins of the people and all of that. And still what he sees Jesus, what he knows about Jesus, what he pictures of Jesus, he knows that he sees the risen Lord, but he realizes he had been slain. Whether he saw the marks, I don't know. But you see... That's what Jesus wants us to know. It isn't simply what I told you. It's what I did. You see, that's the very point of it. I often share with people when they ask me the essence of Christianity and I say, Christianity is something that's happened. It's an event that took 
place. Yes, it's something we believe, but we believe that something took place. We believe in a person who did something. It happened. If it didn't really happen, we're lost. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there is no resurrection of Jesus, then we're to be pitied. It isn't like we've lived a nice life of forgiving people and being nice and all of that. You know, it isn't that at all. He says, if if Jesus hasn't risen for the dead, then he's not the son of God. And if he's not the son of God, there is no forgiveness of sins. And if there is no forgiveness of sins, then we die in our sins and, and we're lost. And that's it. We have no hope. But because he's risen, then you see, it proves that he really is the Son of God. It it proves that his sacrifice really was accepted by the Father, that he really did die for the sins of others. And once he conquered death for us, he was free to go because he had no sin. And it's true then, too, that everything that he promised and everything that he said is indeed true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection of the life. He is the vine through which we're nourished. He's the door through which we go through. He is the shepherd that that watches over us all the time and cares for us, you see. All that's true. And there is life. Real life. The very life we long for, the very life that we're meant to have because of him. Yes, it begins now. Not in its fullness, but in its beginnings. Because now we know we're forgiven and now we know we're reconciled to him and we can trust him. And a day will come when we'll see it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray for me, for us, that we would believe that just thinking about this experience of Thomas and Jesus be used by you in our own minds, our own hearts, cause us to declare that Jesus is my Lord, my only Savior, my God, the only one in whom I trust. May that be true for us, Father. And Father, we lay out before you our various, various needs, some in the context of real doubt. We pray by the eyewitness of these apostles and those to whom they entrusted this word that you would enable all those who doubt to believe. Father, we pray for those going through difficulties, whether it be in marriage, whether it be financial, whether it be emotional, material, physical. Father, that you would meet each one with the very word of God and bring forth faith that will bring forth peace. Father, for for us as a church that we would be those sent in peace, with a message of peace, that we might bring this gospel of forgiveness in the context of our families, within the context of our friendships, within the context of our relationships, and throughout the world. For this we pray, in Jesus' name.